Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Uh, Now that's a quote from the famous atheist Richard Dawkins, uh, and it does lay out an understanding of faith that I think is quite common uh, out there. It's an understanding of faith that I do want to critique, but before I do that, I actually want to spend some time saying what I appreciate about Dawkins' definition of it here uh, and his critique, because I think the kind of faith that he's talking about ought to be attacked, Uh, because it's the kind of faith that you hear politicians and journalists talk about uh, when they talk about people of faith, and I think it's their way of trying to be inclusive and tolerant, that um, he has faith in Muhammad, You have faith in the Buddha. She has faith in Jesus. But we're all people of faith and we can all just get along. And I think it's good to be tolerant and inclusive of people. But actually, I think Dawkins is right about this one, that that kind of faith ought to be criticised. That sort of faith is a cop-out. Because, I mean, imagine, uh, if uh, if you will, that it's your birthday and your parents have generally, are generously lashed out and bought you a present. They bought you a ticket to go bungee jumping. And you say, wow, thanks, Mum and Dad. Bungee jumping, great. You're kind of scared, but you decide that you'll give it a go. And so you rock up to the bungee jumping place, you climb up to the platform, and uh, as you're standing there on the platform, they start fitting the elastic around your ankles and all that kind of stuff. And your heart's pounding and your palms are sweating and you're starting to get really anxious. But you have faith in the elastic, right? You know, people have done this before. But as they're strapping you in, you sort of look to the side and you notice that there are three other people who are going to jump at the same time as you are. And one of them is there busily tying dental floss around her ankles. And the other one is holding on to his magic teddy bear. And the third one is praying to Richard Dawkins that he'll save him from hitting the bottom. And so you say to the guys who are running the bungee jump thing, you can't do this, you can't let these guys jump like that. They're going to die. And they say, hey, 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 just settle down. You're making everybody very nervous here. Don't be so intolerant. You have faith, they have faith, we all have faith. We're a multi-faith inclusive bungee jumping company. Stop being such a bigot. They've got as much faith as you. One, two, three, bungee! (laughs) And that sort of faith is stupid, isn't it? Because it's not faith that makes you survive a bungee jump. It's the thing that you have faith in. It doesn't matter how much faith you have or how sincere your faith might be, dental floss and a magic teddy bear are not going to save you from hitting the bottom. Now, if faith in just anything can save you, then raising doubts, causing people to doubt, then that would be a terrible thing because suddenly they have doubts and before they had faith and they were just going to bounce back up, but now they've got doubts and they're going to hit the bottom. But that's not how it works, is it? (laughs) No, if the thing that makes you bounce back up is not faith, but whether the thing you have faith in is reliable or not, then having doubts is a very good thing. 
You'd want someone who's tying dental floss around her ankles at the top of a bungee jump to have doubts, <laughs> to think maybe this is not the best option. Doubt forces us to think and evaluate the evidence, the very thing that uh, Dawkins wants us to do. Where Dawkins goes wrong, though, I think, is that he believes that faith is just something religious people have. Now, this is why you should study philosophy, uh, even if you just do it as a broadening unit or something like that. Because if you study philosophy, they will make you think hard about things and they'll stop you from saying silly stuff like this. Because if you study philosophy, you'll realise that in reality, we all trust stuff all the time. We all have faith in all sorts of things. You had faith this morning when you got in your car or on the bus to come to uni. You were trusting the car. You were trusting the bus driver. You're exercising faith right now as you sit on your chair. Dawkins himself has faith that science can tell us everything we need to know about life, death and everything else. We all have faith. You can't avoid it. Our parents all bought us a ticket to go bungee jumping the moment we were conceived. They pushed us off the platform and we are all plummeting towards our death. And we're all trusting something. But what should we trust? Should we trust Jesus or Muhammad or the Buddha or ourselves? Should we trust Dawkins that there's no such thing as a bungee cord and we should just kick back and relax and enjoy the ride before we hit the bottom? But not everything that people trust is equally reliable, is it? Uh, which is why Dawkins is right to urge us to think and evaluate the evidence. But everyone's got to do that. Not just religious people. Everyone needs to think about what they're trusting. The other place Dawkins is wrong is to think that faith must, by definition, be unthinking and unquestioning. A sort of blind faith. Faith in spite of, or perhaps even because of, the lack of evidence. Now, that may be what some people mean by faith. You know, that's a valid thing to stick in a dictionary if that's the way people are using it. But it's not what the Bible means by faith. Faith in the Bible just means trust. Not blind trust, but the kind of trust that you exercise when you sit in a chair. The kind of trust you use all the time. It's not blind trust. It's not irrational trust. It's not trust for no reason. Uh, on the contrary, the Bible urges us to do the very thing that Dawkins is urging us to do. It encourages us to think and evaluate the evidence. Now, that can feel quite threatening if you're a Christian. Because what if you head out and decide that you're going to investigate the evidence about Jesus and you come to the conclusion that the evidence doesn't stack up? Like the possibility of that happening can feel quite threatening. What would that happen to my sense of identity, to my sense of self, to my sense of meaning and purpose and hope? And so you can get Christians who retreat into a sort of I just have faith kind of idea because that way I'm safe if my if my sense of self and identity and all that kind of thing doesn't depend on evidence then evidence can't shake it but it is irrational 
On the flip side, I think that thinking and evaluating the evidence for Jesus can be quite threatening if you're not a Christian. In fact, I think that the claim that faith is belief in spite of the lack of evidence can actually be a sort of protective mechanism for atheists. Because it doesn't matter what evidence you produce about Jesus. I don't need to think about it. I don't need to evaluate it. Because I already know that Christians just have blind faith. Their faith doesn't depend on evidence. Jesus doesn't love me, this I know, for Richard Dawkins told me so. We all trust something, but we shouldn't have blind faith. We should have doubts, because doubts help us to think and evaluate the evidence. Uh, in fact, I reckon you could say that the whole Bible is kind of a doubter's guide to Jesus. See, the overarching storyline of the Bible is that there's a God who created the world. He made us in his image. We've rebelled against him and deserve his judgment. But that because he loves us so much, he sent his son Jesus to take the punishment for our rebellion in our place. That he raised him from the dead three days later to be the ruler of all creation. And that we can enjoy forgiveness and eternal relationship with God simply by trusting Jesus and what he's done for us. That's the overarching storyline of the Bible. And it's incredibly significant if it's true. But what's important for us today is to realise that when the Bible makes those claims, it doesn't ask us to have blind faith in the message. It actually invites us to come with all our doubts, all our questions, all our uncertainties, and think and evaluate the evidence. As some of the evidence that the Bible puts forward, you might call that sort of philosophical evidence of a sort. Uh, it points out that the creation can't have made itself. It must have come from somewhere. It points out that we all instinctively know that there really is right and wrong. Raping children is not a personal preference. It's wrong, objectively wrong. Raping anyone's objectively wrong for that matter. Some of the evidence that it puts forward is that the Bible has a really powerful explanation of what life is like. Um, personally, I find it's explanation that we were made in the image of God, but we've rebelled against him. That that's a really powerful explanation of why people are the way they are. Why is it that people can be so wonderful and yet simultaneously, like the very same person, can be awful? Uh, why is that? Why are we so conflicted? Well, the Bible says it's because we're made in the image of God, but we've rebelled against him. It fits well with reality. Then there's the internal consistency of the Bible. The Bible is not just one book. It's a collection of books, 66 different books written by nearly 40 authors over, at the very least, about seven or 800 years. And yet it fits together so well. I think for me that's probably the most compelling argument for the truth of Christianity. That it's just remarkable. It fits together unlike anything else in the history of the world. There's the fulfilment of prophecy, like the prophecy by Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And lo and behold, you get this 
amazing guy who claims to be the Messiah, 700 years later, born in Bethlehem, who totally turns the world upside down. There's also the eyewitness testimony to events like the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The Bible doesn't call on us to have blind faith. It invites us to bring our doubts and to think and evaluate the evidence. Uh, And I want to show you one example of that today in the Bible. Uh, It comes from the letter to the Galatians. Uh, Galatia was a part of the Roman Empire, a province in modern-day Turkey. Uh, And it's one of the first places in the world to hear the news about Jesus. Because the Apostle Paul, uh, who I'll talk about a bit more in a moment, brought them the news about Jesus. And the Galatians heard it and they believed the message. They became followers of Jesus, Christians. But what's significant for our purposes today is that a few years down the track, they're starting to have doubts. They're starting to become unsure about exactly what the message is. And is the one that they heard from Paul the right one? They've got doubts. Uh, So if you have a look with me at the handout you were given on the way in, if you want to have a look at um, the outline here, we've got the passage printed out on the back of the sheet. Uh, And we look at uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. So um, very first sentence that we're looking at. So Paul is no longer in Galatia. He's off somewhere else in the Roman Empire. He's writing to these people uh, that he first told about Jesus. And he says to them, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And I guess the question we want to ask is, why is Paul so shocked that these people who he told about Jesus are now starting to abandon it? Uh, Is it because he thinks that they should have just blindly believed his message? No, actually. The problem is he thinks that they are blindly believing the message of others. And they haven't actually thought through the evidence. They haven't weighed it up. And if you read through the rest of his letter to the Galatians, you can work out what's happening. See, uh, he'd gone to Galatia, he'd told them about Jesus, they believed, but then later on other preachers had come in. Um, Other preachers who were coming from a Jewish background like him, but they're kind of saying something like, hey, terrific, we've heard that you guys have put your trust in Jesus. We're stoked. We're really excited about that. Uh, Wonderful. Praise God. But you know what? It's not really enough. You know, if you want to be really secure, really right with God, yeah, you know, trust Jesus, that's good, but you've got to become a Jew as well. You've got to keep the Old Testament law. You've got to, um, you've got to keep the Sabbath. You've got to follow the kosher food laws. You know, no pork, no shellfish. You've got to get circumcised. That's the big one, because that's part of God's promise to Abraham. It's the sign of his covenant with Abraham. Um, You trust in Jesus, that's terrific. But if you want to be saved, if you want to be really sure that you're doing the right thing by God, then you've got to become a Jew as well. So there's doubt about the message. Who is saying the truth? Are either of them saying the truth? 
how can you know that Paul's message is the true message? How do you know that he didn't just make it up? Or that he kind of got it confused, Chinese whispers style, or that he just really wanted it to be true and he kind of talked himself into it. They're important questions to ask. They're the good questions to ask. But what's interesting is Paul's response to the Galatians. He doesn't say, oh, look, I understand that you guys have doubts, but just look inside your hearts and you'll know, you'll feel, you'll sense that what I'm saying is true. He doesn't say, guys, just, just have faith. No, he actually presents them with clear historical evidence that they can think about and evaluate. So let's do that. Let's see what he says. So the charge against Paul uh, that these other preachers are bringing is that he's distorted the gospel. Oh, look, you know, Paul is a lovely guy. Look, you know, nice guy. But the trouble is he just really wants people to like him. He, you can understand that, can't you? But the problem is that when he comes to talking about Jesus, he leaves out all the difficult stuff. You know, all the stuff like keeping the Sabbath and keeping the food laws and especially getting circumcised. Like, people don't like doing that. And so he wants people to like him and he leaves it all out. He says, all you've got to do is trust in Jesus. He's just preaching this easy salvation message. He just craves approval. And Paul kind of says, well, what do you make of that message? Is Paul a gospel-distorting people-pleaser? Well, think and evaluate the evidence. Uh, and there are three pieces of evidence that Paul puts forward in this section. Um, I've called them Paul's conviction, Paul's conversion, and Paul's corroboration. Uh, so exhibit one is Paul's conviction. So you can see it there again in chapter 1, verse 6, the very first sentence. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In other words, if you're preaching a different gospel from the one I first preached to you, you can go to hell. And this is from a guy who, that's not a glib phrase, he really believes in hell. And the question we've got to ask as we think and evaluate the evidence is, is that the statement of a guy who just wants to make everyone like him? Are they the words of someone who's happy to just change the message? Verse 10, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? See, if Paul's the gospel-distorting people-pleaser that his opponents claim, how come he is so determined not to change it? If he's such a chronic conflict avoider, how come he's so confrontational? When you think and evaluate the evidence, the claim that Paul just made up the message about Jesus so people would like him doesn't really stack up because it would have made his life 
so much easier just to go along with what these other preachers were saying. Say, yeah, look, yeah, yeah, you probably should keep the Old Testament law. You probably should get circumcised. Would have made his life a lot easier. He would have avoided a whole stack of problems and fights, but he absolutely refuses to do it. He won't change the message for anyone. He behaves, in fact, like someone who's utterly convinced that the message he's preaching about Jesus is true and that it couldn't be more important. You might say, but hang on a minute, Ben, there's lots of people who preach crazy stuff and they seem totally convinced about it. Uh, I'm not sure that's entirely persuasive. That's yeah, fair enough, which is why... Paul also puts forward the evidence about his conversion. Exhibit 2, his conversion. Uh, and it comes in verses 11 to 14. Uh, sorry, I've got the passage and the notes on the opposite sides. It's a bit annoying. Um, but he says in verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. See, Paul was a brilliant rabbi. He was top of his class. We know from our historical records that he was the student of the student of Gamaliel. Um, and if you know anything about uh, Judaism, uh, Gamaliel... Uh, no, hang on, sorry. Paul is the student of Gamaliel, who is the student of Rabbi Hillel. If you know anything about Judaism, uh, Hillel is probably the biggest rabbi out there. Um, so Paul's kind of top of his class. He's destined for a big career in Judaism. And he was determined to destroy the church. He saw it as kind of a, a weird sect, a cult that had come up within Judaism that, well, you know, all the Jews were waiting for the Messiah, but they were saying that the Messiah was this carpenter from Nazareth and that he'd been crucified. That's not what happens to Messiahs. Messiahs are all conquering heroes. They don't get crucified. And they were saying that he'd been raised from the dead three days later, but that, that doesn't happen. Like, the resurrection comes at the end of history. You don't get one person getting resurrected before everyone else. That's not how it works. And so he was determined to destroy the church. Uh, in the book of Acts, in the Bible, it records that while a Jewish mob were in the process of lynching Stephen, a young Christian, stoning him to death, Paul was there holding their coats for them and nodding approvingly. This was what he wanted. This is the destruction of the church. In fact, the whole church in Jerusalem ends up being scattered, partly because of the persecution that Paul, amongst others, brings. But then suddenly, Paul does a complete 180-degree turn in his views about Jesus. From being violently opposed to him, suddenly now he's preaching the very thing that he tried to destroy. He's become Jesus' greatest advocate. From killing those who proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, he's now prepared to die himself for that claim. 
And the question you've got to ask as a historian is how do you explain such a sudden dramatic change? He's got nothing to gain by it. He was already sort of the upper crust in his class. It's not like he's got family or friends or his society who are sort of putting pressure on him to change his mind. It's not like he's having late night deep and meaningful conversations with his Christian mates. He doesn't have any. He's trying to kill them. So how do you explain it? And Paul says, oh, that's simple. I met the resurrected Jesus. You can see it there in verse 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And you can read the whole story in Acts chapter 8. Paul, having just scattered the church in Jerusalem, is on his way north to Damascus to try and destroy the church there as well. And yet on the road to Damascus, he met the resurrected Jesus. Now that sounds incredible. But if you're willing to think and evaluate the evidence, then actually it kind of makes sense. Like what explains both Paul's sudden total conversion in his views about Jesus and his absolute conviction that what he's preaching is true, his total refusal to change it for any reason. Well, actually, meeting the resurrected Jesus would explain it, wouldn't it? And that brings us to the third piece of evidence that Paul puts forward. Uh, I've called it Paul's corroboration because, hey, who doesn't like talks where you've got three points and they all alliterate? But um, it's actually based on what historians call the criterion of independent attestation. Uh, which sounds terribly fancy and complicated, but it's actually something you just intuitively do all the time. Uh, the idea is that uh, if you've got two independent sources telling you the same information, then it's highly likely to be true. So, for example, if um, one of your friends comes up to you and they say, hey, I was down at Cottesloe Beach this morning and there's this huge whale that has beached itself there. You think, hmm, oh, okay, well... You know, that seem, they've always been kind of reliable. But, I mean, that sounds like a weird thing to have happened. I don't know, is it true? Maybe, maybe not. But then someone else who has no connection with your friend, uh, hasn't been collaborating with them to pull a prank on you, comes up and says, hey, you wouldn't believe this, but I was down at Cottesloe Beach this morning and there's this huge whale that's beached itself. You are much more likely to believe them. And it's much more likely to be true because you've got two independent sources. They're not part of a conspiracy who are telling you exactly the same information. And that's exactly what Paul is saying about the gospel because he points out here that there are two independent groups who are preaching this news about Jesus. There's Paul and then there's the Jerusalem apostles the original disciples of Jesus. So uh, Matthew and, uh, and Peter and James and John and all the rest of them, the 12 disciples. But here's the interesting thing. Paul didn't hear about Jesus from these guys. You can see it there in chapter 1, verse 15. 
But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia and later I returned to Damascus. He's saying that he received the gospel completely independently from the Jerusalem apostles. He didn't hear it from them. He got it on the road to Damascus, directly from Jesus. And verses 17 to 18 tell us that he's been preaching that gospel in Arabia and Damascus for three years before he ever cut eyes on a Jerusalem apostle. For as long as your degree, he hasn't had anything to do with the Jerusalem apostles. And then after three years, as you graduate, he goes down to Jerusalem. And uh, at that point, he meets Cephas, which is uh, the Greek name for the apostle Peter. He stays with him for 15 days. And the only other apostle he meets is James, the younger brother of Jesus. And the question is, what is the result of that meeting? Does the word go out, hey guys, watch out for this fella Paul, he's a snake. Like he's, he's just changed his tactics. He's still trying to destroy us, but now he's doing it by distorting the message. He's being subtle and underhanded. No, just the opposite. When Paul goes to preach in Syria and Cilicia, he says, the Christians in the churches hear that he who used to persecute us, that is us in Jerusalem, that's who he was persecuting, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul's never heard the gospel from the Jerusalem apostles, but when he meets them and talks about it and they compare notes, he gets a big thumbs up from them. And then 11 years later, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, says 14 years, but I think that's including the three that he mentioned before. Um, so probably about 11 years after that meeting with Peter and James, he goes up to Jerusalem again, this time with uh, his friends Barnabas and Titus, to tell the Jerusalem apostles what he's been preaching. And when they hear it, James and Peter and John, they don't say, ah, oh, look, kind of. Like, that's close, but yeah... Yeah, you're right, like Jesus did die for our sins. He did rise from the dead. But actually, you kind of do need to keep the Old Testament law. Like you shouldn't be telling people they don't need to get circumcised. They really kind of do. No. They say, snap. That is exactly what we're preaching. We're saying exactly the same thing. For 14 years, almost completely independently of each other, They've been preaching exactly the same message about Jesus. And there's been no drift in it. There's been no sort of Chinese whispers. They're preaching exactly the same thing. And people often sort of say that, you know, here we are 2,000 years later, and how can we actually be sure about what was spoken and all that kind of stuff? You'd really need to be back there at the time to be able to tell. But the interesting thing about this is that we're actually in a better position to see that what Paul is saying is true than the Galatians were at the time. Because if Paul says to you, hey, look, I'm preaching exactly the same thing as the Jerusalem apostles. We, we heard it independently. How do you check? Well, you kind of got to send someone down from Galatia, from Turkey, back down into Israel, to Jerusalem, to talk with the guys down there and you know, say, well, this is, this is what we hear Paul's saying. Does that match with what you're saying? 
and you can come back and say yes or no or whatever. We don't have to do that. We just need to pick up a Bible because we've actually got the writings of the Jerusalem apostles in there along with Paul's writings. We've got the Gospel of, uh, of Matthew, uh, the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to John, as well as three letters from John, the book of Revelation that he wrote as well. We've got the Gospel according to Mark, who relied on Peter uh, for, for his information. We've got two letters from Peter himself. We've got one from James, one from uh, Jude, another of Jesus' brothers. And you know what? When you read them and you compare them with what Paul's saying, they're preaching exactly the same message. They're not different at all. This is not part of some conspiracy. These letters had gone out to different churches all over the place. They existed independently for some time before they were all brought together. And yet they're preaching exactly the same message as Paul, that Jesus Christ is Lord, who died for your sins, and that you can be saved from sin and death simply by trusting in him. They corroborate Paul, and he corroborates them. So I want to say that Richard Dawkins is right, uh, or at least half right, that we can't just turn our brains off and say, I just have faith. We do actually need to think and evaluate the evidence. But everyone needs to do that, because everyone's exercising faith in something. We all need to think and evaluate the evidence of what we're trusting in. But what happens when you think and evaluate the evidence about Jesus? Now, where does the evidence lead? Does it point to the news about him being made up? Well, actually, no. It's the opposite. Firstly, you know, here you've got Paul's conviction. He doesn't behave like someone who's just made it up. Secondly, you've got his conversion. How do you explain his total 180 degree turn in his position about Jesus? And thirdly, you've got his corroboration, his independent reception of the gospel and the fact that it corroborates and is corroborated by the Jerusalem apostles. I think as incredible as it might seem, the evidence doesn't point to the news about Jesus being made up. Nor does the Bible say that it's something that you just need to close your eyes and say, I just have faith about there's actually evidence that you can look at. It points to it being true and historically verifiable. Jesus really is God's long-promised Messiah who gave himself for our sins and who God raised from the dead to reign forever. That's not blind faith. That's just where the evidence points. And that is big news because it means that Jesus actually has taken our punishment, that our rebellion against God can be forgiven, that we can be adopted by God, that there really is life and meaning and hope, and we can look forward to sharing in God's glory forever. Yeah, Dawkins is right. Faith in the absence of evidence is a cop-out. It's good to have doubts if they lead us to think and evaluate the evidence. But faith in the gospel is not belief in spite of or because of the lack of evidence. It's just the logical response to the evidence. Now let me stop there. And um, just one question. One question. Any questions?
Now you made everyone feel like they've got to have the most important question. <laughs> yeah. So um, just back when you were talking about his uh, conversion mm. um, and that he was so against um, the idea of Jesus, um, mm. like if we saw something like that in today's time, mm. wouldn't we see the person who's so obviously against a point, like close their ears, shut their eyes, um, and just distance themselves away from what they've been told or what they've seen, instead of doing that 180 yeah. backflip and suddenly now believing? Yeah, or I think that's right. Green. Yeah, yeah, yep. So. Yeah, so, so what I'm arguing is that um, what's interesting is that Paul doesn't do that. He, he doesn't go, I'm just going to block out this stuff about Jesus. Uh, well, that's kind of what he is doing initially uh, as a, a rabbi, as a Pharisee. He's going, no, nah, this is rubbish, I don't believe it. It doesn't fit with anything that I believe. But then suddenly completely flips around. That's unusual. Why does he completely flip his views about Jesus? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's an unusual thing to happen. People yeah. don't normally do that. Yeah. yeah, I just think it's um, a bit weird that somebody would potentially do that. Yeah. Like, if someone came up on the street dressed as Santa and told me he's Santa. Yeah. Obviously, we've all grown out of that, I think. Yeah. We wouldn't do the 180 backlit. No. Or anything. No, no, that's right. Yeah, even exactly. If they, even if Santa said that, like, was adamant that he is the real thing, pulled out his pocket, gave me a lolly or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, like, gave me presents or whatever I asked for. Yeah. Like, we still wouldn't. We'd just walk away and watch to make sure they're not trying to take us into their white van. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so it must have been an incredibly compelling experience for him to suddenly change his mind like that because it is so unusual. Like, you're right, you wouldn't do that with Santa. But then, you know, maybe if a, a sleigh with a dozen reindeer suddenly appeared out of the sky and landed nearby, you might start to rethink your position. Um, I think Paul's kind of saying something like that happened to him. That, um, yeah, he, wasn't, he didn't believe in any of this stuff about Jesus. But then on his way to Damascus that day, Jesus appeared to him. And... Uh, completely blew him away. It just changed. He thought, oh my goodness, this guy who I thought was just a condemned criminal who'd been executed and all this stuff was rubbish, he's actually like real and alive and back from the dead and oh my goodness, like what does that say if God has brought him back from the dead? Um, it must be God saying a big thumbs up to this guy. Yeah. Completely changes. Yeah, so, yeah, good point. Would be funny if that was just a, if the person Paul saw was just like another one of the, like another street preacher, just even like crazy. Yeah, and <laughs> like a crazy guy in a sandwich. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, have a read of Acts chapter 8, because um, he describes it there, describes what the experience was like. Um, in fact, it seems so significant to him that he mentions it three times through the book of Acts. Uh, it's worth having a read. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Ben. Thanks. Um, sorry we didn't have more time for questions. Um, ben is going to stick around for a little bit longer. So um, 